Father, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the extra focus that we can give to uh, focusing in on what it means that you left eternity, entered into time and space, took on human form, and you were born as a little infant, vulnerable in this world so that we could come to know you. So thank you, Father, for that. Thank you for this season, and I ask that as we move through these next four Sundays that you would deepen our awareness of what it means that you came to this earth to redeem us. In Jesus' name, amen. So I'm curious, any hunters here? I, I know that some, yeah, I know you, yeah, yeah. Okay, Ray, nice. Did any of you get your deer this year? No? Sweet, I did. <laughs> Yeah, wow. Uh, I thought there were, but I, someone got an elk, and so I don't even want to talk to you. But uh, <laughs> so I, um, yeah, I got my deer, and I was really excited about it. And uh, but before I got my deer, I was taking my boys hunting from time to time. And there was this one morning we were leaving um, our our hunting spot and going to pick someone up, and uh, we didn't get anything. And I was with Sawyer, and we were sitting there uh, driving off, and I looked at him, and I said, so, buddy, are, are you disappointed that we didn't get anything? He said, well, no. I thought, oh, well, why not? I'd be disappointed. I was kind of disappointed. And he said, well, it's because I didn't really expect that we would get anything. <laughs> oh, <it's> just... <laughs> I'm like, oh, so then why did you come? <laughs> Right, I'm missing that. I'm thinking, okay, so what, why did you even bother coming out to do this? And he said, well, I didn't expect that we would get something, but I was hoping that we would. And so at this point, I began to see a little window into the mind of a sixth, sixth grader. And, uh, and so I said, well, tell me, what's the difference between hope and expectation? And, and I'm paraphrasing. I don't remember the exact words he gave me, but he basically said that hope is... Uh, something that's based on not reality and that expectation is based on reality. So he didn't expect to get a deer because statistically we're not going to get a deer and we'd been out all these other times and we hadn't gotten a deer. So he, based on reality, he didn't really expect that we would get a deer, but he still had hope. So then I was like, okay, well, this is kind of a cool conversation. I said, so Sawyer, tell me, where does hope come from? And then he said, well, hope comes from being disappointed, from having my expectations not met. And so I was kind of chewing on that. And I thought, well, no, that, that's the wrong answer because that's not what I would have said. <laughs> but, but I asked him to explain it to me a bit more. And, and he said, well, if I'm never disappointed, I have no need for hope. Sixth grader. <laughs> And that just blessed me to have that conversation with him. And this series that we're entering into in this Christmas time is called The Birth of Hope. We live in a world that has disappointed us. We have experienced tragedy and loss and struggle and broken relationships and material failure, success, failure again. We go through life and we are wounded by it. And so we need hope. And so 
over these next four Sundays, we are going to be studying the birth of hope. And we're going to be focusing in on Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. So if you didn't bring a Bible, go ahead and grab the pew Bible in front of you. If you don't have one to call your own, then we would encourage you to take that. And it's not stealing. We give it to you freely as a gift because we want you to have God's word available to you. We're going to be in Isaiah chapter 9. Uh, that's on page 573 in your, in your pew Bible if you have that one. And so we are going to be looking at the birth of hope. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. And by the way, this passage is probably right up there with the most often quoted, for unto us a child is born. We see that all over the place during Christmas time. It's on Christmas cards, bumper stickers, everything. It's right up there with uh, peace on earth and goodwill towards men from Luke chapter 2. So it's a familiar phrase, and we're going to dig into it a little more deeply over these next few weeks. So Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, for, for a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, the government will rest on his shoulders, his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. So today we're going to look at the first of those phrases, wonderful counselor. But before we do that, I want to take a look at some of those phrases that precede that. You know, I, I don't like to jump right into the middle of a verse. It's a good idea to get the context of, of it a little bit. And so the, the first part that he says there is, for a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us. And it's interesting, that word for indicates that what we are reading connects to something previously stated. Uh, my junior high and high school youth pastor used to tell me, uh, whenever you see the word therefore, you should ask what it's there for. So, <laughs> and, and it's there to, to tell me that there's something connected to it. And, and one of those elements that Isaiah is connecting us to is from chapter 7, verse 14, the, um, the prophecy of the virgin birth. And then there's a bunch of other stuff that happens in chapter 7 and 8 that we don't have a chance to really unpack. But one of those elements is that prophecy of the virgin birth. And so when, when he says, for a child will be born to us, he's, he's connecting us to the previously mentioned context. And it's that big context of, of the Messiah being promised, that there would be someone who would come and rescue them from their difficult circumstances. And the next thing that shows up there is a child will be born unto us. At least I think that's what it says. Yeah, a child will be born unto us, a son will be given to us. Now, this is a form of Hebrew poetry. It's parallelism. Uh, in, in the Hebrew poetry, they don't rhyme words, they rhyme ideas. And so, in, in the first line, it says, a child will be born to us. And then the second line, it says, a son will be given to us. And you'll notice that, that those ideas parallel. The, the child and the son, that's a parallel idea. And then we see, uh, will, will be given and born. It's a parallel idea. Uh, and, and then both of it says, they'll be given to us. So he, he's rhyming those ideas. And uh, as we look at the child, a child will be born to us. That's really what Christmas is all about. It's about God entering into time and space in the form of a child. 
And that's what happened on that Christmas morning that we were just singing about. God entered into time and space. A child, a little vulnerable baby, dependent on, uh, on his parents for everything, was born to us. And we know ultimately born to die the death that we deserve to die so that we could have life that we did not deserve to live. So that child would be born. But some people say that, that when he was born, it was, that, that he didn't really become God or that he wasn't really God. He didn't really become man, whatever. They'll try to exchange those ideas. He wasn't fully God. He wasn't fully man. That he, maybe he left some of his godness behind or he didn't really become human. Well, the reality is, and again, we don't have time to unpack all the details of it. If you have questions, ask Pastor Scott when he gets back. <laughs> but but the, the, the reality is that Jesus was 100% God and 100% man. And so he did not cease being God when he became man, and he became man though he was God. And so the child was born man. And he was born for us. Now, when Isaiah says he was born, uh, a child will be born unto us, a son will be given unto us, he's probably talking about the nation of Israel. That was his most direct audience was the nation of Israel. But, but we know from reading in, well, say John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And so, yes, Jesus was born as the Messiah to the Jews, but so much more than that, to the whole world he was born for us, all of humanity. And I know it's cliche, but we ought to consider that that is God's ultimate gift to us. So I won't ask if there were any Black Friday shoppers, or now they have Black Thursday shoppers. But I, I remember uh, we were watching some TV after some turkey or whatever, and they had this TJ Maxx commercial that came on with this, this woman who was, they called her the gifter or something like that, and she was the amazing gifter, and she was able to get every gift that every person needed. And it, it made me think of how much pressure there is during this Christmas season. Oh, I, I don't want to forget anyone on my list, and I need to make sure that I, I, I get the right gift for this person, and oh, they don't like this, and last year they got me a way better gift than I got them, and so I need to really, you know, my goodness, so much pressure, so much stress. It's no wonder Sheldon Cooper doesn't like gift giving. <laughs> That's for all you Big Bang Theory fans out there. It's a television show. But, Laura. <laughs> but the reality is God gave us the ultimate gift. And, and it's not as though we need to, okay, well, he gave me a really good gift, and so now I, now I need to make sure to give him a good gift, at least as good if not better. No, all he asks is that we accept his gift and and live our life in appreciation of that gift. And so, if you are here and you're entering into this Christmas season as a person who has accepted the gift of Christ as God's ultimate Christmas present to you, then I would encourage you, uh, how are you living appreciation of that gift? There are far too many presents that end up in the closet or in the junk pile in the garage or broken or going to goodwill six months later. Let's not let this be one of them. Let's live a life 
that is appreciative of this gift that God gave to us. Because in this, in this Hebrew parallelism, we see the child's son is given to us. He's born, given to us. And so it's just a, a very valuable reminder that we need to, to live that appreciation of that gift that he gave us. So, so Isaiah says, for a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us. And then he says, the government will rest on his shoulders. The government will rest on his shoulders. You know, it's no wonder that some 800 years later, the Jewish community would expect the Messiah to be a political ruler who would come and cast off the shackles of Rome and sit on the throne of David, which was rightfully his, and, and restore the golden age that once was. That was the common expectation that a lot of people had of the Messiah. And when we look at passages like this, we see that, yeah, maybe there is uh, a sense in which he will be a political ruler. And in the Hebrew, it's possible that it's referring to this idea of the, the mantle of leadership or the, the weight of responsibility of governing the people. There, there were kingly robes and, and garments that when the king wore them, he was putting on the authority of the king. And so some people say that when it says it will be on his shoulders, it's a reference to that, that garment, the, the robes that the king would wear. Um, either way, what we do know is that ultimately, Jesus Christ will rule his people rightly. And whatever your political persuasion, I think you can take comfort, I know I can take comfort, in the fact that there will come a time when Jesus Christ will rule rightly over his people. Because there's not been a king on the earth that has ruled rightly in every way as he will. And so it gives us something to look forward to, that the government will rest on his shoulders. And then Isaiah says, whoops, I forgot to mute my cell phone. (laughs) Public service announcement, mute your cell phone, because I didn't. Then then Isaiah says, uh, his name shall be called. Now, in, in our culture, a name is a name, and some of us get curious, and we go on Google, and we type in, what does John mean, or what does Susie mean? And then there's these big, long explanations of what that name means. But in, in the culture that Isaiah was speaking to, as in some cultures today, when they talk about a name, it's not just a way of identification, but it's a, a means of identity. So my name is Ian McIntosh. That's my identification, but that's not my identity. My identity is something completely different. In their culture, the name and the identity were a lot more connected. And so that's why when you're reading through the Bible and someone says, um, oh, and, and it was with great struggle that I gave birth to him, and so I shall call him this. They're wrapping up that identity into that name. And so, and, and I can say this because I'm 1% Native American, so um, my mom and I did the math over the holiday weekend. <laughs> so when, when uh, they, they talk like in Native American cultures where they name someone stands with fists or whatever, then that, that's someone who's really, uh, well, you might say stubborn or strong-willed or firmly grounded in what they, because it's a name that communicates their identity. And so in these next four weeks, when we look at these names, because Isaiah said, his name shall be called. And I remember when I was a kid, I was reading the Bible, and I'm thinking, but wait a minute. 
His name was Jesus. It's not like Mary said, oh, I'm going to name you Wonderful Counselor. I'm going to name you Prince of Peace. So what, I, I always struggled with that when I was a kid. But then someone explained to me that this was a, a way of revealing the identity of that person. And so as, in these next four weeks, we're going to look at each one of these and see what the identity of Jesus is through this prism of these four different names. And I've said four. Some of you may have uh, the King James Bible. and Either you grew up with it or you're reading it, and, and I have no problem with that. But in the King James Bible, there's a comma between wonderful and counselor. And so if you look at it that way, then there would be five. Wonderful, counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. But most of the modern scholars have... Uh, who study the Hebrew language, because in the original Hebrew, there are no commas. So we need to look at the, the language and the grammar of it and see uh, kind of the best, the best way to break it up there. And uh, when we get into wonderful counsel, I'll explain that a bit more. But just so you know, there, most people would say that there are four, not five. So he says, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor. These first two wonderful counselor, mighty God. They refer to uh, the, the supernatural characteristics of God, of Jesus, the Messiah. And they help to explain the second two, which we'll look at the last two Sundays of our Easter, Easter, wow, excuse me, our Christmas season, which are the um, eternal father and the prince of peace. So, so let's get into it. Wonderful Counselor. What does it mean when Isaiah says that he will be called the Wonderful Counselor? A uh, little story from, from my childhood, just to kind of help illustrate this. Um, any dirt bike riders? Yeah. Ah, okay. So when I was a kid, I don't know, I was maybe eight or nine years old, I had a Suzuki RM80. It was a little dirt bike for an eight or nine-year-old. My older brother, he had a Kawasaki KX250, the big, you know, tearing up around everything. And we used, to, we used to ride in the ditches along the highway until we got to a big field that we would ride in. And as big brothers often do, he always was in front, and he would never let me pass him. And so we were going from one side of the ditch to the other because the ditch ended here and started over here. And so he went and did this really awesome, like, you know, ride up the embankment and kick the bike sideways and photo opportunity. And he lands it and goes down in the other ditch. But the fuel line fell off of the, the shutoff valve of his, of his gas tank. And, and so gas was just gushing out of the gas tank all over his left leg and, and the ground and the bike. And so that, his bike stopped. And so then I went putting right past him and I, I gave him one of these and just kept going. And... <laughs> Because younger brother, you don't get that opportunity very often, you know, so I took it. Next thing I know, he was in such a hurry to catch up with me. He took the fuel line and he, he stuck it back on there and he fired that bike up real quick. It was an older bike that had, I don't know if you know about um, mechanics, but had, uh, had points and condenser. It didn't have electronic ignition. So as soon as those points sparked to get the bike running, yeah, poof. So I'm thinking, wow, he should have passed me by now. That's weird. And then I look back and I see this big column of fire. And so I, 
I stopped my bike and I went back there and he was off the bike. The bike's in the ditch. He's up on the side of the road and he's dancing around because his left leg was all on fire and he's going like this and he's grabbing dirt and patting it on there because his leg's on fire. And now we had just, thank the Lord, we had just had Fire Marshal Bob in my classroom like the week before. (laughs) And so I learned the difference between a gas fire and a chemical fire and I knew what to do for each one of them. And so I'm the younger brother and I'm standing there and I said, well, you know, really what you need to do is smother that because it's a gas fire and you're not going to be able to put it out just by doing that. And he's all, shut up. And, and, and I said, well, why don't you pull down your pants and smother the fire? And he looked at me and he said, I'm not pulling down my pants. And I, okay, so he's sitting there going like this and, you know, patting dirt into it, trying to get it to, to stop burning and whatnot. And eventually he pulled down his pants and it smothered the fire. And I laughed at him and... <laughs> Ends up, we burned down some 20-some-odd acres that day. Yeah. He went to the hospital. I got to be on the news. And <laughs> but I, I, I tell you that story because he didn't want to take my advice initially. And I, I don't know if you've ever been in a circumstance where somebody didn't want to take the advice that you were offering to them, but it's kind of frustrating sometimes because... From my perspective, I knew, I knew what needed to happen. I knew what kind of fire it was. I knew how to put out the fire. And I didn't want to see him hurting too bad. And it was, it was a struggle for me to see him not take my advice on how to put out the fire. And eventually he did. And uh, he suffered a lot of third-degree burns and has some cool stars for the, scars for the story. So, but when people don't take our advice, sometimes it's frustrating. Jesus is our wonderful counselor. What does that mean, that Jesus is our wonderful counselor? Well, wonderful does not just mean, and you might have been wondering, is he ever going to get to the bulletin insert? (laughs) Here we go. Now you can start writing in your bulletin insert if you're the type. Uh, Jesus is not just a great counselor. Wonderful does not just mean great but rather it means that his counsel is supernatural. For any word nerds that happen to be here, the the word wonder is a noun, not not an adjective. And so he is the wonder counselor. It's like if he was a superhero, this might be one of his names. He is a superhero. He's a hero of my story. And this is one of his superhero names. He's the wonder counselor. And so he gives us supernatural counsel. Oh, whoops, I skipped a line there. It's good to have this insert. It keeps me on track. So the second point there, the counselor doesn't just mean psychologist, but rather advisor. So when we think of counselor, sometimes we think of, well, I need to go get some counseling or I have some issues. I need to go to a counselor. Jesus is good to go to for that, but ultimately... It's talking about advisor, like a king would have an advisor in his court. It's, it's that sort of situation. So Jesus is the supernatural advisor. So just real quickly, where do we see this in the ministry of Jesus? Well, I've four points here, uh, and we're not going to look at each one of these stories. Uh, but in Luke chapter 2, he goes to the temple. He's a 12-year-old kid. He goes to the temple with his parents and uh, to Jerusalem, and they leave without him. He's in the temple talking with the Pharisees. And, and it says that they were amazed 
at his understanding of the scriptures. In Matthew 7, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, uh, they were amazed at his teaching. In Matthew 13 and verse 54, when he was preaching in the synagogue of his hometown, it says that they were astounded at his words. And then in Matthew 22, uh, there's a situation where a lot of the opposition of Christ had come, and, and I get this picture that they were lining up person after person to kind of take shots at Jesus and try to try to discredit him or catch him in his words or something. And and it says that uh, that they were astonished at his teaching because no one could silence him. And it says that they ceased trying to challenge him publicly after that point. They were astonished at his teaching. So he is the wonder counselor. So then, do we appreciate his counsel? I do. I appreciate his counsel. I wonder if I read his word often enough to be astonished at who he is and what he says. If I'm not feeling a sense of astonishment and wonder at his counsel, then it's not because this is falling short. It's because maybe I'm approaching it in the wrong way or maybe not approaching it enough. So, in fact, uh, his counsel is so wonderful that it is better than, I've just got a few random lists here. It's better than your own counsel, right? Proverbs chapter 3, verse 5, uh, lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. Uh, his counsel is better than mine. His counsel is also better than that of my worldly buddies. I see that in 1 Corinthians fifteen thirty three. Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. So... And yeah, we agree with this, right? And the, the third one there, his counsel is better than all the cool kids. All right? So uh, we see in Acts chapter 17, the story of the Bereans who, after Paul preached, they went back and, and did some fact-checking to make sure that what he was saying was, was accurate to God's word. And then a story there in, in 1 Kings uh, that talks about when Solomon's son became king, he did not take the advice of Solomon's advisors, Instead, he took the advice of his friends who told him how to be a good king. Did not work out so well. Caused a civil war. So yeah, I, we all acknowledge Jesus' advice, his counsel is better than my own. It's better than my worldly friends. It's better than the cool kids. Okay, but then when life heats up, when circumstances get hard, where do I turn? Do I turn to my friends? Do I turn to the cool kids like Dr. Phil and Oprah, they've got all the right answers? Or do I turn to God and his word? Because his counsel is better than, than all those others, but it's so easy to turn to something else instead. So, if his counsel is so wonderful, I think we ought to take his advice. Easier said than done. My older brother, sitting there on the side of the road with a leg burning, struggled to take the advice of his younger brother. He, he later tells me, 
a little bit of pride involved there. So why is it so hard to take his advice? Why is it so hard to go to him, the wonder counselor, instead of all these other areas that we go? I've got three tips to to help as we try to take his advice, go to him as the wonder counsel. The first one is that we should ask Jesus for his counsel first. I I dare (laughs) you. Seriously, I dare you to go to Jesus first because it is so easy and tempting and comforting to go somewhere else. And then when all that doesn't work, well, okay, I guess I'll try seeing what God has to say about it. Give God the first chance. Give him the first chance. Ask Jesus for his counsel first. Secondly, hear his counsel the loudest. Hear his counsel the loudest. And thirdly, respond in confident obedience. Respond in confident obedience. We've gone to him. We've heard his voice. Let's respond. Whatever the circumstances you find yourself in, whatever circumstances I find myself in, when, when life just blows up around me, and it does, I want to turn to him first. I want to hear his voice the loudest, and I want to respond in confident obedience. But like I said, it's hard. It's hard. One of the reasons I think it's hard is because it's just so much easier to go, with, go to someone that has skin on, really. I mean, we are human beings. We live in a physical realm. We are corporeal, if you like the big fancy words. But the reality is that um, God is not. I can't sit down and have a conversation with God face to face. And so I tell myself, well, maybe it would be easier if, if, if that was the case. But the reality is he wants me to go to him first. It does feel easier to go to someone with skin on. And I'm not saying that it's bad to ever ask anyone for advice, but let's give God the first chance. So let's look at John chapter 10, verse 22 through 27. Great story here. At the, uh, I'll just read it from the screen to you. You can follow along if you want in your Bible or on the screen. At the time of the Feast of the Dedication that took place in Jerusalem, by the way, that's Hanukkah. It's referring to the Feast of Dedication. It's most likely referring to Hanukkah. It was winter, yeah, like it is here. And Jesus was walking in the temple in the portico of Solomon. The Jews then gathered around him and were saying to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, the Messiah, Tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you didn't believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, these testify of me. You do not believe because you are not of my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. My sheep know my voice, I know them, and they follow me. So Jesus does not have skin on for us. He does in heaven, but we don't get to see him right now. And so why is it so hard to go to him first? Uh, Because we would rather go to someone that, that we can see, someone we can talk to, someone with skin on. 
I think also it's hard because we don't necessarily hear his voice. So why is it so hard to hear his voice? A couple of possibilities there. Just as I look at my own life, why is it so hard for me to hear God's voice? It could be because the world is just too loud. Maybe the world is just too loud, either literally or figuratively, right? Maybe I'm just surrounding my life with noise. I walk in the... This happened when Matt goes out of town with the boys. I walk into an empty house after work, and I just don't like it. So I go and I turn on the radio or I turn on the TV, right? I get in the car, I'm by myself, and that feels weird. So I turn on the radio or I turn on the TV. I'm trying to drown out the silence. Well, okay, I don't have a TV in my car. You're right. (laughs) (laughs) But we try to drown out the silence, right? Maybe we're drowning out God's voice. Maybe we just need to be okay with a little silence. Or maybe we've made our lives so chaotic, we don't even have time to stop and listen. So maybe the world is too loud, or maybe I've become unfamiliar with his voice. Maybe it's been a while since he and I talked, and so when he does answer me, I don't recognize it as him. Okay, so the three pieces of advice I had was to get his counsel first, hear his counsel the loudest, respond to him in confident obedience. It's hard to go to him first because he doesn't He's not here with us physically. It's hard to hear his voice loudest because the world is too loud and I'm unfamiliar with his voice. But why is it hard to do what he says? Well, it requires saying no to myself. It requires trusting that he truly is the wonder counselor. I had a tough decision to make uh, ministerially in terms of what I was doing in my ministry some months ago, and I called a a guy who's a a founder of a pretty significant ministry down in Oregon, and uh, and we were talking about it, and I was saying, oh, I really don't know what to do because if I do this, then this will happen, and if I do this, this will happen, and I don't know if God wants me to do this or if God wants me to do that, and I just sure wish I could figure it out, and and so right there in the middle of the conversation, he, he just stopped me and he prayed. He said, Lord, would you help Ian to hear your voice and do what you say? And all of a sudden, all that complexity just kind of evaporated. Like, oh, it can't be that simple. <laughs> just to ask him and hear him and do it? No, let me make it more complicated because that's too easy. <laughs> It really is that simple. Just ask him. Hear his voice and do what he says. Because he is the wonder counselor. He deserves that foremost position in my life of where I get my direction. If you're with us today and you've never received that gift of Christ as the hero of your story then asking him for direction should come after receiving him as a gift. And so I'd like to invite you to consider, have you received that gift of Christ as the hero of your story? I know for me, I 
received that gift when I was 12 years old in a child evangelism fellowship trailer at a, at a county fair. And it took me about a month to really understand what that meant. But I began to know that he was the hero of my story. I had surrendered my life to him. And I was no longer calling the shots. He was. I acknowledged my need of him because I was incapable of living life the way he wants me to. I needed his help to help me live life the way he calls me to live it. Not because he gets angry at me every time I disobey and he just wants to smack me upside the head, but because he wants me to have all that he wants for me. All the blessings that come with walking a life with God as my wonder counselor. And so if you've never made that decision to, to receive him as your gift, then I encourage you to do that. In fact, I would encourage you just to, uh, to follow along in the privacy of your own heart as I lead you in a simple prayer that acknowledges that he deserves that spot in your life. So let's bow our heads and close our eyes. Jesus, thank you for leaving eternity, becoming a man, and dying on the cross for my sins. I, I need your forgiveness. I trust that you accept me as I am and you love me enough to not leave me that way. And that you offer new life as I place my life in your hands. You offer me new life, eternal life, beginning now. Thank you, Jesus, for, for paying that price. And Lord, as we enter into a time of communion in a moment, I'm just reminded of what a precious gift that is that you came to this earth to redeem your children.